Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be dealing with the third part of the Eucharist article. The first place that we're going to start is things which I didn't have time to bring up, either in the article or in the podcast. And this section, I'm not sure where it stops, really, because although I get into philosophy, although I touch on early church fathers, those two are things which we can certainly expound on further. And if you have any questions about, please email me at thegordianot101 at gmail.com. All right, passages of scripture. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was touched on but not expounded upon. I also ignored the laws about thanksgiving and peace offerings in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and Abraham's meal with God in Genesis. Um, I probably should have got to Isaiah 55 and the great prophecy of Malachi chapter 1. And I also didn't talk about the tree of life in Revelation, which would have fit into the New Testament section. I mention these because I don't want the listener to leave with the impression that this article was a comprehensive read of the Eucharistic doctrines in Scripture. It wasn't. It wasn't even close. This is kind of a brief tour, if anything. Um, I want to list off a couple early church father quotes, but again, these also are not um, comprehensive. Far from it. All right, there are many more that could be included, but I'm going to try to find the ones which are are um, closest to the writings of scriptures, closest to Christ. First one, this is uh, from the letter to the Smyrnians, which admittedly does sound a little bit made up. Hey, where's this letter from? Oh, uh, it was to the, uh, the Smyrnians? Anyways, this one's authentic. Consider how extraordinary to the mind of God are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which has come to us. They have no regard for charity, none for the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, none for the man in prison, the hungry, or the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins, which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. So that's somewhere from 80 to 110 AD, and it's already grouping people with heterodox or abnormal, unorthodox opinions um, as people who abstain from prayer, who, uh, who don't help the widow and orphan, and who deny the Eucharist. So this is, um, the, these are the bad guys, right, <laughs> who are, are denying the Eucharist, and it shows that the church which um, which this person is writing to and and uh, and is I believe a bishop in I got to remember who wrote this I'm sure you guys can find that um, this person is admitting that yes the Eucharist is the quote flesh which suffered for our sins which the Father in His graciousness raised from the dead and that's in talking about the Eucharist which he calls our Savior Jesus Christ so. Um, that one should be pretty darn clear. Definitely the early church had this doctrine. Okay, next one. Come together in common, one and all without exception, in charity, in faith and in one Jesus Christ, who is of the race of David, according to the flesh, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, so that you with undivided mind, um, so that with undivided mind you may obey the bishop and the priests, and break one bread, which is the medicine of immortality, and the antidote against death, enabling us to live forever in Jesus. That's a letter to the Ephesians in somewhere from 80 to 110 AD. We have another uh, letter directed to the Romans. Um, I have no taste for the food which perishes, 
for, uh, nor for the pleasures of this life. I want the bread of God, which is the flesh of Christ, who is the seed of David, and for drink. I desire his blood, which is love and cannot be destroyed. And next one, take care, then, who belong to God and to Jesus. They are with the bishop. And those who repent and come to the unity of the church, they shall be of God and will be living according to Jesus Christ. Do not err, my brethren. If any one follow a schismatic, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. If any man walk about with strange doctrine, he cannot lie down with the passion. Take care then to use one Eucharist, so that whatever you do, you do according to God. For there is one flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup in the union in his blood. One altar, as there is one bishop with the presbytery, and my fellow servants, the deacons. That's from about 110 A.D. This we call the Eucharist, of which one is allowed to partake, except no one is allowed to partake, except one who believes that the things we teach are true, and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and rebirth, and who lives as Christ handed down to us. We do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus. That's from the first apology probably 148 to 155 A.D. Um, I don't know why I somehow left off the names of these people. I imagine that's probably Justin Martyr. Um, but a lot of these were pulled from churchfathers.org in the Eucharist section, and there's many more, so I invite you to go and check those out if you are interested. Next quote. God has therefore announced in advance that all the sacrifices offered in his name, which Jesus Christ offered, that is, in the Eucharist of the bread and of the bread of the chalice, which are offered by us Christians in every part of the world, are pleasing to him. It's 130 to 160 AD. Next, moreover, as I said before, concerning the sacrifices which you at that time offered, God speaks through Micaiah, one of the twelve, as follows. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept your sacrifices from your hands. For from the rising of the sun until its setting, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense is offered to my name, and a clean offering. For great is my name among the Gentiles, says the Lord. But you profane it. It is of the sacrifices offered to him in every place by us, the Gentiles, that is, the bread of the Eucharist, and likewise of the cup of the Eucharist that he speaks at that time. And he says, we glorify his name while you profane it. That's from the dialogue with Trifo. Now, this one's referencing um, Malachi chapter 1, I believe. This wild and crazy prophecy that comes from Malachi that there's going to be this sacrifice offered by the Gentiles that's going to continue, that's going to be pleasing to God. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. The sacrifices which were offered by the Gentiles at that time were offered to demons, as Paul says. Um, some of them did human sacrifice. That, that was common. Clearly, that's not pleasing to God. So what is this strange prophecy meaning? Well, the early church interpreted it as the Gentiles would be given 
a sacrifice to offer that would continue forever. And this sacrifice was the Eucharist. And I said that I wouldn't get to Malachi chapter 1. All right, moving on. So then, if the mixed cup and the manufactured bread receive the word of God and become the Eucharist, that is to say, the body and blood of Christ, which fortify and build up the substance of our flesh, how can these people claim that the flesh is incapable of receiving God's gift of eternal life when it is nourished by Christ's blood and body in his, in his members? As the blessed apostle says in his letter to the Ephesians, for we are members of his body and his flesh and of his bones, Ephesians 5.30. He is not taking some kind of spiritual and invisible man, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones, Luke 24-39. No, he is talking of the organism possessed by a real human being, composed of flesh, nerves, and bones. It is this which is nourished by the cup, which is his blood, and is fortified by the bread, which is his body. The stem of the vine takes root in the earth and eventually bears fruit, and the grain of the wheat falls into the earth, John 12, 24, dissolves, rises again, multiplied by the all-containing Spirit of God, and finally, after skilled processing, is put to human use. These two then receive the word of God and become the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. This is from the five books of the unmasking and refutation of the falsely named Gnostics, book 5-2. This is around 180 AD. Okay, for just as the bread which comes from earth, having received the invocation of God, is no longer ordinary bread, but the Eucharist consisting of two realities, earthly and heavenly, so our bodies, having received the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible because they have the hope of the resurrection. And that's from that same place around 180 AD. So I think you can see from that, and there are many more, as I've said, that the early church had a firm and deep-seated conviction that the bread and wine that they offered became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, in this last quote, um, it's talked about as what gives us the hope of the resurrection. So anybody who says this is a new medieval invention, that's, that's completely bogus. We see this at the very beginning of the church. And I would add that um, this is the church in one area. We also have... Um, Communities which were founded by Thomas, for example, all the way out in India. We have people who were, were separated off um, in, in Ethiopia. We have Christians all over the place from very early times. And um, all of them practice um, the sacrament of the Eucharist. And all of them believe that it is Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. So we wouldn't expect that we would have this unity um, across uh, geographically diverse um, churches if somehow this popped up in the Middle Ages. No, they, they, that wouldn't make sense. This has certainly been here from the beginning. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, Jewish tradition. So there's a ton to be said about the manna from heaven. For instance, rabbis discussed the idea that this bread was um, preexistent in the Father from all eternity. Yes, they were starting to envision the second person of the Trinity, and they, they identified this as the manna from heaven. There's much more to be said on this topic, such as their beliefs on how the Messiah would bring back the manna forever. Their expect expectations are fulfilled in the Mass through participation in Christ's messianic high priesthood. There is a strong and old tradition in Judaism that believed that the Father who blesses the bread during Passover causes it to become 
the bread that was actually eaten as their ancestors left Egypt. This parallels the Eucharist since the Father, or the priest, blesses our new Passover bread and it becomes the life-giving meal on our journey out of the land of slavery. The Jews had a command that they had to see the face of God three times a year. They fulfilled this command by viewing the showbread the priests uh, brought out of the holy place and held up saying, Behold how God loves you. And today in every Mass, the Eucharist is elevated. It is the face of God and his sacrificial body. It is the definitive proof of God's love for us. There are books exploring the topic of the Last Supper meal, the last cup of wine. Um, for instance, uh, Scott Hahn writes about this. I think it's the, the last cup, fourth cup. I've never read it, but I know it's good. People tell me about it. Um, was, um, so this means that the last cup was consumed at the cross. This means that Christ extended his celebration of the Passover to the cross, transforming it from an execution at the hands of the Romans to a sacrifice at the hands of himself, the high priest. More to be said about Jewish tradition. I know it's getting tiresome. I'm like, oh, no, there's more here. Oh, there's more there. But I hope that this is more of a jumping off point for your own ex exploration. I am far from, a, um, from a, a great scholar of all these things. But I, I, I present what I know. The next part is the philosophy of transubstantiation. And uh, this is one of my favorite sections. If Jesus is present in the bread... There are two possibilities as to how. Option one, the bread remains. Option two, the bread does not remain. If it is the first option, this seems to contradict basic logic. How can two material things exist in the same place at the same time, but in different ways? Frankly, they can't. So it seems that we should reject this first option, that in the Eucharist, the bread just remains bread, and then also Jesus is there present in the form of bread at the same time. That's making two claims about the identity of a single um, material substance. So we should reject that one. But what if we try to make this first theory work a bit by saying that the bread becomes Christ's body in the same way that Jesus became the body of a first century Semitic man? This option imagines a new incarnation and a whole new hypostatic union that is completely alien to the history of Christianity. Jesus joined himself to human nature to save humans, not to bread nature to save breads. That would be ridiculous. I hope you, you caught that argument there, that if we're saying that the bread remains for any reason, and we also say that Jesus is there, then we're claiming that Jesus is joining himself to bread nature in some type of hypostatic union, or we're claiming that two contrary things are true at the same time that we must reject. Okay, so what if he is there only in essence, presence, and power? Well, the biggest problem with that is that God is present in all things, in those three ways, as Thomas Aquinas would say. But what saves us is God's presence through Jesus in the incarnation, which was bodily. So what about this second option? Could his body be present in the form of bread, such that the bread changed in substance from bread into the body of Christ, with only the accidents remaining? Sure, none of those previous problems apply to this scenario. The question then becomes, can a substance change into a different substance? Well, that answer is obvious, yes. When hydrogen and oxygen become water, a substantial change occurs. When a sperm and egg meet, a substantial change has occurred. Substantial changes happen all the time. 
But how would a substance appear totally different while still being the same substance? Again, this actually happens all the time. For instance, water can appear as a cloud in the sky, a complex crystal, or a liquid, all the while being the same substance. There is nothing novel about a substance being able to take on different accidental properties that alter its appearance, taste, smell, etc. So what about Jesus? Did his body ever change in appearance on earth? So glad you asked. He appeared different enough to the disciples on the road to, the Emma on the road to Emmaus that they couldn't recognize him. Then he made himself known in the giving of the Eucharist. Why? Because, as his disciples, this is where we are now to find Christ. Here's another example. During the transfiguration, he appeared in his glory. He had the same body. He was the same Jesus. But he had a, same, he had a different appearance. Briefly, let's talk about why things cannot be defined according to the sum of their accidental properties. If substances didn't have essences and instead were the sum of descriptive properties, then there is nothing in which these properties cohere. In other words, what would, uh, what would bundle these properties together and not others? For instance, if a cat is sitting on a couch, what divides the cat from the couch? Without essence, there is no privileged way to divide the cat from the couch. Why not decide the couch also includes the head of the cat? By understanding that properties cannot be arbitrarily bundled, but instead must cohere in a thing, as that thing, we have two possibilities. Either the properties are attached to and are embedded in the base material of the things which are composed, or they cohere in an immaterial form called an essence. These are the only two options as shown by the law of the excluded middle. The properties either cohere in the material or in the not or immaterial. If the properties cohere in the base material, then again we have the problem of the cat and the couch. There seems to be no principled way to divide out which atoms ought to be cat atoms and those of the couch. After all, there are only properties like woven, furry, purring, cushioned, and the material in which they cohere. Why would cat atoms include furry and purring and not woven? It seems there is no truth in the matter about what things count as a separate thing. Now, a response might be that the causal power of purring located amongst the cat atoms would be a way of separating them out. The issue is substances are defined according to their causal powers, and to affirm this novel power is not inherent to the atoms, but instead the form that they took such that they can have this power is to smuggle back in the concept of form and thus collapse this view back into the original concept that includes a real essence that defines the cat according to the form of the cat, impressed on the matter and cohering its properties. If this causal power story according to the form is instead denied, then our collapse into the former view is avoided. However, it is at the cost of an infinite regress problem for causal powers, where no material things can have a causal power according to what it is or its essence, but only in virtue of its material con um, constituents. This regress ends in nothing having any causal power. But wait, things do have causal powers, and novel ones based on their form. Therefore, this view must be false. Armed with the brief defense of Catholic philosophy of matter, the Eucharist uses the material from the bread to become the substance of Christ's body by having the form or essence of it, his soul and divinity, being impressed on it. 
This does not entail the properties of bread that remain dictate that the bread is present, since those accidental properties would simply be cohering or stuck to a different essence. Here's a simple example. If a human sperm and egg connect, they form a new life. But what about the nanosecond prior? What if the connection between the two is one picometer too distant to count as a new life being formed? In both of these cases, a new life has not yet formed, and yet to any reasonable observer, it would appear identical to the life that had begun. We know a soul enters the body at conception such that the material becomes a new substance, a human being. However, as we saw in the examples above, the physical properties at time one, where conception occurred, might, by all intents and purposes, seem identical to a set of material properties at time uh, 0.99999, so not quite time one. But one of these collections of atoms is a person with a human soul, whereas the other is just a clump of organic material with the potential to become human. This is why it is dumb to group things based on their collections of properties rather than based on their essences. People aren't people because we share the same material or the same set of properties, but because we share the same nature or essence. Just to clarify this one, because I think this is a very good point, um, particularly for other Christians who share the conviction that um, we're not materialists and that people have souls, is that at some point people are ensouled. We believe it's right at the moment of conception. We don't know exactly where that is, but if we if we found the moments before and after, all of the properties, you know, weight, um, size, all of these things would be identical if we just backed it up one tiny, tiny millisecond. And yet one of them is a person and one of them is not a person. One had an immaterial soul fused into it and is therefore a completely different substance as a human. And the other one is just a conjunction of sperm and egg and is j just a grouping of organic material without a soul that's not a life. So we already have a strong analog for a time when by direct action of God, an immaterial soul comes into material matter such that a person is then present without a change in the properties of the thing. All right? Okie dokie, moving on. All things are in a state of potential vis-a-vis -vis their creator. For us, only some things when combined would have the potential to actually form a given substance. For instance, only hydrogen and oxygen have the potential to form water. But for God, anything or nothing has the potential to become anything else or nothing at all, according to the exercise of his omnipotent causality. Since God is the one transubstantiating the bread into Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, the bread, like all things, stand in potential to its creator. So is it a miracle? Yes, but it's not irrational any more than the incarnation of Christ is irrational when the material of Mary's body was transformed into the body of Christ, or when the body of Christ was transformed into the glorified body of Christ in the transformation. At the moment of transubstantiation, a person becomes present, just like in the moment of conception. No physical change is observed, and yet the substance has changed from a lifeless organic matter into a person with a soul. Just like the moment of conception, the thing that just, be, that, that just became a person does not look like a person, does not act like a person, and yet scripture, reason, and tradition tell us 
um, unequivocally that this is a person, and in both cases. It seems that I had um, the same summing up thought uh, later in that article as I did while podcasting. But I do think that one's a very important one to remember, that analog between the two. Now we have reached the objections and um, responses section. Okay. Now, um, just a word about this. If, if you don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, um, I've been there. Everybody's been there at some point. Even cradle Catholics have been there. There was a time when you were a child and you had to be taught this. There is a time that, that God gave you the faith to accept this. So this isn't of our own doing. This isn't meant to just trash people who uh, don't believe in this. But we do believe that this is true. And we think it's extraordinarily important. This is wonderful news, and we want people to know it. And if there are objections, if there are questions which hold them back from being in union with Jesus Christ, um, yeah, we're going to destroy those. Okay, objection one. Come on, John 6 is obviously a parable or an illustration. You know, Jesus also says that he's a door, a vine, and a seed. We know these are meant to show a truth, but they're not a declaration that he's turning into one of these. Jesus isn't a vine. Jesus isn't a door. And you know what Jesus also isn't? He's not bread. It's a, it's a parable. Answer. Quote, I am the door. In what way are you a door, Jesus? Quote, no one comes to the Father but by me. I am a vine. In what way are you a vine, Jesus? Quote, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So how is he a seed? Jesus explains, a seed must die and be buried in order to sprout, and so too with himself. So how does Jesus explain his words in John 6? When confusion arises, he insists, this is my, my body is real food and my blood is real drink. This dialogue bears no resemblance to his metaphorical teachings. The Jews clearly didn't think he was kidding, and neither did the early Christians across the globe where his church taught that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And a lot of these I give a second answer, so here's the second answer to this. Go ahead and find me a single place where the disciples respond to this with, this is a hard saying and who can accept it, in the context of one of his actual analogies. No one left Christ because they thought he was telling them that he was an actual door. They did, however, leave him during the Bread of Life discourse. This is the only time, other than Judas's betrayal, that Scripture records Jesus losing disciples. Next objection. At the Last Supper, Jesus is holding the bread in his hand. How could it have been his flesh? He didn't remove or lose a piece of his body. This means that the bread is you know, like his body, or maybe it just represents his body, since it obviously isn't a part of him. Answer. Jesus is, is God's grace and love given to us. Unlike the scarcity that characterizes our interactions on earth, the spiritual economy has no such restraints. To give love is not to lose it, but rather to increase it. To give grace is not to have less of it for oneself, but to watch it increase in communion with one's neighbor. This objection either fails to understand God's omnipotence or fails to understand his love. And the second answer is, the material of the bread was changed in substance from bread to Christ's body while retaining its accidental properties as described in the philosophy section earlier. This means he didn't need to gather material from his own body since he could change the material of the bread into his body. Objection. 
What part of remembrance do you not understand? If, it is meant, if we are meant to remember or commemorate something, that means it isn't that thing, but instead a remembrance. When we remember the Civil War, we don't do it by fighting it all over again. When we give somebody a commemorative plaque for 40 years with the company, we don't put them back on the payroll. Let's try out this idea on another remembrance found in Scripture. Quote, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now imagine an Old Testament Jew with your interpretive scheme. Why it can't really be the Sabbath today? After all, we are told to remember the Sabbath. How can it be a remembrance and the actual Sabbath? Asking that question would be a very speedy way to prompt laughter from someone beneath the yarmulke. And here's another one. Exodus 12:14 tells the Israelites to commemorate or make a memorial of or remember the Passover. Does this mean they didn't have to kill and eat the sacrifice each year? Of course not. Next answer. Remembering is the opposite of forgetting. The command, do this in remembrance of me, is a command to not forget to do this. It is a calling attention to the importance and perpetual nature of a thing. Here's an example. I drive a diesel car. Imagine I lend you my car for a while and I give you the instructions. Remember my car takes diesel. Fill it with diesel in memory of me. When you get to the pump, what do you do? Well, hopefully you fill it with diesel in memory of me. Understanding that this is something that you ought not forget. It is a perpetual ordinance. For my car will always require diesel. If you plan to only symbolically fill it with diesel, or worse, fill it with grape juice while reciting my words, remember my car takes diesel. Fill it with diesel in memory of me. Well, I'll be both confused and upset. Take note, you can do two things at once. You can fill it with diesel, and you can remember you are filling it with diesel. In fact, anything less than remembering what you're doing while you're doing it is amnesia or sleepwalking. And here's another answer. The word used by Paul for remembrance in his writing on the Last Supper in Corinthians is amnesis. Now, Paul is no stranger to Greek philosophy and even quotes it while explaining God. Quote, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Now, Plato used this word to describe how truth comes to dwell in material things. Plato sees all knowledge as an act of remembering from a time that we were bef before we were in our bodies. The truth comes from the place of the most real things, the realm of the forms, and comes to dwell materially when we amnesis or remember. So Paul's drawing on that as a backdrop. So what's happening in the Eucharist? And why might he be using this word to his Greek audience? Well, clearly, it's a good analogy of what's happening. The divine logos, the truth himself, is coming to dwell materially with us in our act of amnesis. Another answer. Remembrance is, a far richer, is far richer than just a simple mental act. Jewish tradition taught that their Passover meal was the actual participation in the original Passover. In fact, the bread that they blessed and gave was understood as becoming the same bread eaten by their forebears as they left slavery of Egypt. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10.16, echoes this understanding in our new Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread that we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? In case it's not yet clear, this is a rhetorical question. Yes, we are sharing in his body and blood. 
Next objection. Not only is there an absolute prohibition on consuming blood in the law, but eating flesh is cannibalism. Answer. Cannibalism is eating the body of someone else. If you have been baptized, you have been baptized into the body of Christ. So by definition, it cannot be cannibalism, because it is not someone else's body. It is your own. If this makes us cannibals, then we are already cannibals for having muscle proteins in our body broken down and remetabolized. We would be cannibals for having a stomach lining that gets consumed every few hours. If you are among those few who have the gross habit of sucking the blood off of a pricked finger, then that too makes you a cannibal. However, the body sends out nutrition and energy to its members, and that is what the Eucharist does within the body of Christ. Answer. Scripture says it's wrong to drink the blood of animals because their life is in the blood. We are not to be mingling our life with animal life because that brings us down and degrades us. However, what about mingling our life with Christ's life? You guessed it. This raises us up and elevates us because his life begins to be our life. So for the exact same reason that drinking animal blood is forbidden under the old law, drinking Christ's blood is commanded in the new. Next answer. Consuming blood is not prohibited under our current covenant. This is why it's not a sin for the English to eat black pudding or for those in surgeries to consume donated blood. Next answer. Even without the answers above, there is no contest between this objection and the clear words of Christ telling us his flesh is real food and his body is given for us and we are to do this in memory of him. Objections to Christ's words Obedience to Christ's words trump all objections. Next objection. Sure, Jesus could be in the bread and wine, you know, in a way. After all, you know, where, where, where two or more are gathered in his name, he's there too. So maybe we can just kind of accept a, a watered-down version of, you know, Christ, yeah, he's there. Answer. There is a truth of the matter, whether Jesus is present in the Eucharist or not. There is no middle ground between a person physically being somewhere and a person not being physically somewhere. They're either there or they aren't. This objection would need to be far more clear in what is proposing in order to be a valid view. Second answer. That verse is totally out of context and has nothing to do with when and where God's presence is in a particular place. Instead, it's in the context of Christian correction. Just ask the natural follow-up question. Does this mean that we are that when we are alone, God isn't with us? But wait, of course he is. This type of mystical, overly spiritual idea of God's presence doesn't comport with our incarnational faith. Christ came to us through the incarnation. The real presence in the Eucharist is therefore in the context of an incarnational reality. Is he physically and sacramentally present or not? Any attempt to water down the meaning of God's presence in the Eucharist is as bad as watering down God's presence in the body of Christ. Such a spirit is attempting to deny the incarnation, at least in part, and is therefore guilty of the condemnation in 1 John 4.3. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The question of whether or not Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist is not one to be glossed over with weak and overly spiritual platitudes. Objection. Wait a minute, would this mean that Protestants can't have eternal life? Answer. 
Salvation of those separated from the visible body of Christ's church is certainly not impossible. However, I will not be able to give a full explanation of it here. Hopefully, an upcoming article can cover this topic in depth. Second answer. Billy Cram's formula of the sinner's prayer goes like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask you for forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Now, it's possible that this type of plea for salvation by someone ignorant of the Eucharist is understood by God as a plea for the graces of the Eucharist. God desires all people to be saved, and when he sees his children walking towards him from afar, he runs to them. So that last line, I invite you to come into my heart and to my life, that is a specific asking of God to come into your heart, to come into you, to be joined with you. That's what we get in the Eucharist. Um, but certainly in a privileged way, in a way that supersedes prayer. Nevertheless, God is omnipotent, and God is merciful. It's opening up a can of worms, who will be saved and who will not be saved. That's a choice for God, and ultimately, we're going to be in the dark for this. But in the comments section of this article that you can find on the site, thegordianknot.org, um, I have a conversation with a Protestant fellow, and we get a lot deeper into that subject. He talks about, you know, well, how is this part of the gospel? Is it part of the gospel? Is somebody saved? Is somebody not saved if they do this? So if you're really interested in this question, I would direct you there. Next objection. Wait a minute. Jesus does, in fact, explain that his words in John 6, uh, 63 um, were symbolic. He clearly says, quote, It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, that's him saying that what he said prior was, was spirit. You know, it, 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 he's not talking about giving his flesh. Answer, right off the bat, the idea that spirit equals symbol is dead wrong. After all, in John 4, 24, scripture says that God is spirit. Does this mean that God is only a symbol? If we use this interpretive method, it not only destroys Christianity, but all of theism too. Answer, what is a body called that doesn't have a spirit? Well, it's a dead body. If Jesus' body were given to us without the resurrection, it would be useless to us. We already have the dead flesh of Adam. What we need is the life-giving flesh of Christ in order to participate in the resurrection through his body. This statement is pointing out the necessity of the resurrection. Answer, from a purely exegetical standpoint, we ought to use the principle that what is clear ought to clarify what is unclear. What seems clear is this, quote, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Can you come up with a sentence where Jesus could have been more clear on this point? Failure to apply exegetical common sense is motivated reasoning. Next answer. If his words were not literal, then explain how the next statement is not a blatant lie from the mouth of our Lord. Quote, so Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In the King James Version, his statements have the words, Verily, verily, I say unto you. If you say something false after such a pronouncement, it would be a lie. In fact, these words have the power of an oath in his culture. And I don't think that Jesus was breaking an oath or lying. Objection. 
This whole transubstantiation nonsense was never defined by the church for 1,500 years and is therefore obviously the influence of Greek pagan philosophy corrupting the church. Answer. Councils only happen when there is a controversy. There never had to be a council about whether or not Christ was really present in the Eucharist because it was a fundamental and unanimous teaching of the church coming from Christ himself. The council addressed in what specific way this has happened and how we can use the most advanced philosophical concepts of the time, which were the recently translated works of Aristotle, to probe this mystery even further. Next answer. God wants to include the Greeks. Love of wisdom is a good thing. Paul quotes Greek philosophers in scripture, and God sends dreams to the apostles to bring them to Greece. Um, God wanted his scriptures written largely in the Greek language, so clearly he doesn't have an issue with the truth being expressed with Greek language and terms. Languages are full of cultural references, idioms, and history, fully saturating them with their unique cultural thought and practice. If he didn't want Greek influence, he wouldn't have inspired the scriptural writers to use Greek, or he would have helped a different culture become dominant in order to avoid Greek usage. Furthermore, Greek philosophical distinctions give us some of the vocabulary and conceptual framework to understand the Trinity and the Incarnation, and we all agree that that is helpful. Objection. If there is no test we can perform on the Eucharist to show that it was transubstantiated, then it is unfalsifiable and therefore not a real subject of knowledge. Answer. There is no test we could have done on Jesus' body to show that he was God. And we're talking about the same subject, Christ's body. Answer. There is no test that could be performed on you to show that you have a soul. And yet this is one of the most true things about you. Such empirical inquiry has its limits. And this is one of them. Next answer. The statement that all knowledge must be falsifiable is itself not falsifiable, failing its own test. Furthermore, this ignores knowledge that can be had by the means of faith. Next objection. The Old Testament examples you cite are not talking about the Eucharist. You're just mining every section that has bread or wine and just reinterpreting it. That, that proves nothing. Answer. Let's take the Passover for our example. If this objection proved anything, it would prove too much. After all, if one rejects pointing to the Passover meal as a prefiguration of the Eucharistic meal, then one would have to reject the Passover sacrifice as prefiguring the sacrifice of Christ. But Scripture affirms Christ is our new Passover. Therefore, this objection doesn't hold. Next answer. To reject typology is to lose a vast amount of meaning in the Scriptures. Jesus himself showed how Moses and the prophets spoke of him. Objection. Okay, I'm convinced when I return to my non-denominational Protestant church, I will now understand the Lord's Supper of cracker and grape juice as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Thanks. No, 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 no. That is absolutely not how it works. There is positively zero reason to believe that the Lord's Supper in a Protestant church is anything other than a symbol. Because Jesus told his 12 apostles, do this in memory of me. Not the crowds, not Pastor Bob, not you, and not me. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with miraculous bread directly prior to the Bread of Life discourse in John 6, how did he do it? He didn't ask for volunteers, he didn't include Pastor Bob, and he certainly didn't set up a serve-yourself buffet line. No, 
Jesus was the power behind the miracle, and the twelve apostles distributed the bread for the people to eat. The apostles passed down this authority to celebrate the Lord's Supper to the present day. The unbroken line is present in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and nowhere else. Further, it's not like the priests have the equivalent of the Midas touch, turning every bread into Christ. Rather, this must be done in the proper context. A Protestant pastor is not even attempting to do so, and therefore cannot even theoretically do this, even if he had the authority. Next answer. A full explanation of church authority, apostolic succession, and the priesthood would take up another article, probably of this scale. One that I should write at some point. But here's a brief analogy. A police officer has the authority to arrest somebody and to release them. He uses the words, you are under arrest, and then there is a change in that person. They go from being free to being arrested. Then the cop can say, you're free to go now. He has now used his binding and loosing power to make you a free person. Are the words somehow magic? Well, obviously not. But are they necessary? Is his, uh, yes, they are. Is his badge magic? Also no, but it does give him or her authority. Now, can anybody arrest people if they get a badge and say the words? Well, that's a big no. In fact, trying to usurp this authority, even for good reason, is a serious crime. But where does this police officer get their authority? Well, he or she went to a police academy where other police officers trained them, taught them, and commissioned them. Well, what about those officers? Well, same story. They had to be given the authority by previous law enforcement personnel. But what if there's a break in the chain? What if someone opened up their own police station without being taught, trained, or commissioned by the police or by the government that the police serve? What if they make their own badges and say words like, you are under arrest? They are in opposition to the government of that area. They are a false police, and their words have zero authority. If this is how authority can be passed down in secular institutions, how much more can the authority of Christ be passed down in supernatural institutions. If impersonating a cop or opening a false police office is a crime, then what kind of crime would be impersonating a priest or opening your own church? Maybe you're thinking, you've gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exalt yourself over the assembly of the Lord? Well, I invite you to reread this section or re-listen to the section in the first episode where we covered Korah's rebellion. God really does not like it when people start up their own priesthoods. Objection. But I do feel like I'm receiving Christ in the Lord's Supper at my Protestant church. Answer. To put it bluntly, feelings don't determine reality. What you might be feeling is God's call to get to the actual Eucharist. He may be opening your eyes to what you should be receiving. Next answer. There is an extraordinarily, vanishingly small possibility that God could be doing a special miracle just for you outside of the proper context. We are bound to the sacraments. God is not. How dangerous a strategy for your soul to presume upon God's grace in this way and imagine that you can live your life as you please just banking on the fact that you are a special exemption. Objection. Yeah, I used to be Catholic, or I visited a Catholic church, and I received the Eucharist, or worse, I went to Catholic school. It didn't seem that special. How could it be Christ if it was so uneventful? Answer. Well, whose fault is that? Lots of people met Jesus in the first century and didn't think he was anything special. 
But a single encounter with Christ holds an infinite amount of grace. It's our disposition towards him that determines how much grace we can receive. Next answer, God's people grumbled about the manna that came from heaven in Exodus. It's not a surprise that people grumble about the new manna. Next answer. Imagine the Queen of England decided to wander around London in plain clothes. If you sat next to her on a bus, it would be a non-event in your life. However, if you recognized who she was and understood her enormous dignity as the ruler of a sovereign state, your experience would be very different. In the Eucharist, Jesus appears in our world in a modest form. It's kind of like he did when he entered our world as a baby. It's up to us to recognize his infinite worth. Otherwise, we would be fooled into thinking, yeah, nothing extraordinary has taken place. Objection. The Mass can't be a sacrifice because Scripture states that Christ died once and for all. You are crucifying Christ again if this is, in fact, a sacrifice at the Mass. Yeah, no. Answer. Imagine that Jeff Bezos decides to sacrifice all of his wealth in order to pay the debts of the poor. The actual sacrifice takes place when he gives up his billions and places it in a charitable trust. The money in the trust is a sacrifice that he made. For decades to come, that same sacrifice could be presented to creditors on behalf of the poor to clear their debts. But wait! Does it follow that every time a debtor's debt is cleared, Jeff Pizos is re-sacrificing his billions? No, of course not. He gave that sacrifice once, but it is presented to clear the debts of the poor continually before the creditors. The infinite merits of Jesus Christ are applied to those receiving the Eucharist in a similar way. Next answer. Jesus Body, blood, soul, and divinity was the definitive sacrifice that ended all other sacrifices. He will always be the person who was sacrificed. Even now, we can refer to him as our sacrifice for sin. If he is present in the Eucharist, then we can refer to the Eucharist as the sacrifice for our sin, because it is Jesus who, after all, is the sacrifice for our sin. So we are simply identifying the Eucharist as Christ and Christ as our sacrifice. Answer. If you look through the Old Testament sacrifices, particularly the Passover, which we have discussed, you will find that a sacrifice is both an event and a meal. Christ's sacrifice is the same. The sacrifice is an event at the cross and a meal at the Eucharist. Which leads us to our conclusion. We have, we have gone through the questions and objections, and if you have more, please send them in. If you think there's something I didn't cover, let me know. Email me. The burden of proof rests on the Christian who claims that the Eucharist is not the body and blood of Christ. As seen above, Scripture foreshadows it, Christ proclaims it, and the Church remembers it. Rather, the new and novel claim is that it's a symbol and not a sacrament. This is no small disagreement, for Christ says that it is our means of salvation. The stakes couldn't be higher. If the Eucharist is not Jesus, then the whole of the Christian Church for thousands of years centers its worship on an idol. If, however, it is in fact the body of Christ, to deny it would be the spirit of the Antichrist as expressed by the first letter of John the Apostle. We must all make the same choice as our first parents did. Which tree will we choose to eat from? Like the disciples who first heard Christ's words in John 6, we must either leave him because his words are hard to hear, or we must stand with Peter and say, To whom do we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
I know it's going to be a disappointment to you guys, but we are going to skip the mailbag today, and instead I'd like to do a rapid-fire summary of everything from these three episodes. So I'm going to try to just briefly hit it all, because I know after all of this, you probably don't remember all of what we covered. So here's a, a brief recap. We started in the Garden of Eden, which is the story of how God was in union with us and we were in union with neighbor and all of creation all at the same time. And then we broke it through our sin. Now, our promise of this being extended into eternity was the tree in the middle of the garden, which was the tree of life, that if we ate that fruit, we would live forever and extend that friendship with God and neighbor into eternity. But we were banished from Eden, but Christ resurrected into a garden who pulls a tree up the hill and plants it in the outside of Jerusalem, which also is called the um, the true pole of the earth. So this new center um, stands the cross. And this same Christ tells us that his flesh is true food. And being both God and man is the very sacramental incarnational means by which we can get eternal life and be joined into God. We also talked about... Um, Korah's rebellion, this idea that just like in the Garden of Eden, we can choose between two trees. We can either make ourselves the authority, and if we do that, we lose the tree of life, or we can obey what, what Christ has established and thereby receive the, the tree of, of, of life. Um, next, we, we talked about Melchizedek briefly, and we laid out an argument um, where the first premise was Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. Next is Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Next is Melchizedek's sacrifice was in the form of bread and wine. And our conclusion is Christ's sacrifice of himself is in the form of bread and wine. And this is exactly what we see in the Eucharist. We moved on to talk about Joseph in the Old Testament. We see the parallels with Christ. We we examined his... Um, uh, his, his dream where he sees a sheaf of, of wheat rise up and stand upright, and then all the others bow down. We understand that this is proximately about Joseph, how he is presumed dead and then found to be alive and then ascends to the right hand of Pharaoh from whence he saves his people by sending out bread. We understand that ultimately it's about Jesus who describes himself as the wheat which dies and then is resurrected or literally stands upright again. And then all of us are to bow down to him. Well, bow down to what? Well, something that's seen as wheat, but is actually a person. And Christ, like Joseph, ascends to the right hand of the king. And what does he do? He saves his people. How does he do it? The very same way, by sending out a bread which saves us from death. After Joseph, we talked about Gideon, I believe. Oh, no, we talked about the Passover. And the Passover is, I think, maybe the strongest of all of these. And we laid out another argument um, that I read. The first premise is the Passover lamb must be eaten. It comes from Exodus 12, 7 through 10. Next premise, Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Conclusion, Jesus must be eaten. We see a ton of parallels here. We see that he is betrayed at the same time that the lamb would be betrayed. Um, we understand that, uh, that, that, that he's called the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just in that passage of Scripture, but also by John the Baptist. Um, and we, we examine how denial of, of Christ present in the Eucharist in a fleshly uh, form is the spirit of the Antichrist. 
Um, now, that's been a charge which has been lobbed at the Catholic Church a lot, that somehow we're the Antichrist. But instead, whenever you deny Christ come in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. So if we're right that the Eucharist is the flesh of Christ and you deny that, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, we also talk about the manna from heaven, how that there's that cloud, which is the presence of God with his people. Um, while they journey to the promised land, we too are journeying to the promised land. And this cloud um, causes dew to, to condense in the camp. And the condensed dew is uh, this bread which saves them. So we believe that Christ came, that God came into our camp. And in a sense, he gets con- uh, condenses down into our reality. He comes to us and then he becomes our bread. And then in John 6, we see that he's presenting himself as the new manna. And that was something that the Messiah would do. Um, We also have the meal at Mount Sinai, that this ultimate union with God in the Old Testament is where they come and see God and they eat and drink. We believe the the new covenant in Christ's blood is even better, that that is where we eat and drink and we see God. And that all comes into to focus in the Eucharist. Gideon overhears this dream, and the interpretation is that there is this um, this uh, this cake of, of bread, and that it tumbles into the camp of the enemies, and it strikes them, and it collapses the tent and destroys them. And the interpretation is that God will fight for us. So what's seen here? Well, what's seen is bread. Well, what is it? It's a person. So the interpretation was that, that bread was Gideon, that it was his action um, Um, fighting against the enemies in line with God. But again, like Joseph, this is proximately about the person in the story, but ultimately a prefiguration of Christ who appears as bread, who crashes into the enemy camp and saves us. Then we have the presence of the, um, the showbread in the Old Testament, this idea that going to see the sacred bread was like seeing the face of God. Well, now that's fulfilled in the Eucharist, whereby we see God. Um, present in the Eucharistic bread. Then we have John 6, and there's much to say here, but we have Christ's emphatic words again and again that this is true food and true drink. We also offered that argument that um, you have to choose between denying the Trinity um, and denying the, the Eucharist, or else if you accept the Eucharist, you can accept the, the Trinity. So there's that textual argument at the, I believe it's in the second episode, um, whereby Christ describes how we get life from the Father. It's in the same way, consubstantially, with the way that he gets life with the Father. So we have to eat of his actual substance to be joined as substances to his substance. That's the point of the incarnation, that he is the bridge between God and man, because he is truly both. All right, the Last Supper, um, we went through a number of passages there, but we, we see where Paul is describing people who are not eating of the, the bread, which is the discerning the bread, which is the body. Um, we also see people getting sick and dying because they're not um, taking of the Eucharist in a worthy manner. Okay, um, we, we talked about some early church fathers. So the earliest writings we have that talk about the Eucharist uh, none of them deny that it's Christ, and all of them affirm that it's his body, blood. Um, and we understand that his body and blood, soul and divinity, are all fused within one person in the incarnation. 
We talked about the letter to Ephesians, the letter to the Romans, all these outside of the Bible, but they're in the uh, early church writings, the letter to the Philadelphians. Now, the first apology is Justin Martyr. We have, uh, what is, I guess, Irenaeus was a, a main source there too. In Jewish tradition, we talk about how the Messiah would bring back the manna. Um, we talked about some of the other messianic expectations how the Passover was the the central uh, sacrificial act um, amongst God's people and is fulfilled ultimately in the Eucharist. We went back to that. In the philosophy of transubstantiation, we described how we already know of a time where something goes from just um, organic matter to a person. It's called conception. It's through an act of God whereby he insoles this thing and it makes a substantial change. We described how we can't have just a materialistic universe because if we're always appealing to a, a material part in order to explain a causal power, then we have to appeal to the parts of the parts and on down in an infinite series. Instead, we have to say that a causal power comes from something at the level of substance. And if we accept substance, um, then that, that brings us pretty far along into the traditional Aristotelian metaphysics, whereby it does make sense to have properties cohere in a different essence. We gave some examples of times that a substance appears differently and has different properties. For instance, water can be ice, can be steam, can be liquid, can all those things. And then we also look at how Jesus's body appears in different ways. So there's nothing weird about Christ being able to appear the same substance in a different form. And that's the claim of the Eucharist. Um, we also went into some Q&A sections, which I think we, we, we just covered, so I'm not going to rehash any of those, but I think it's important to note that we have even additional arguments there about Paul's, um, Paul's using of the word amnesis and the parallels to Platonic thought, the realm of the real, the realm of the forms, which Plato believed, um, could send down uh, immaterial forms to inform matter and thereby indwell truth into material things. So God is, um, you know, in the person of Christ is the divine logos, which means the intelligence, the intelligibility, the, the very truth. So truth incarnate did come down, and uh, we see it described as an act of remembering, which is an echo back to Platonic philosophy. And of course, he's teaching in Greece at the time and echoes a lot of other Greek philosophical themes. All right, I hope that's a good rundown for you guys. And um, yeah, we might do a mailbag episode where we just cover some things which are a bit bigger questions. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a preview of, of what questions I I would want to have come up. I won't answer them here. One of which was, um, can we, uh, let's see, let's see. Here we go. Um, what do we do with the whole evolution creationism debate? So I've, I feel like we need to talk about that a little bit. Certainly creationism is much more fringe view within Catholicism, but there's a lot of Protestants who do accept this. So how do we dialogue with them in a charitable way? Um, another one would be, oh, here's a good one. Is universal health care a good idea? Should Catholics support it? Uh, spoiler alert, absolutely not. Another one I want to give more attention to is um, this theme with a lot of churches flying rainbow flags. Again, more of a Protestant thing. And we're going to have um, a question about can you kill an abortion doctor? Right? Is that immoral? Well, we're not supposed to kill, but then again, we can defend life. Well, we understand that this is the same as a life of a child or an elder or anything else. So there's parallels to be had with like Nazi Germany, with 
um, people rounding up and killing just a specific group of people they don't view as worthwhile or don't view as human. So this goes into a much bigger question of, um, of responsibility and spheres of subsidiarity when we can justly use violence, uh, just war theory. So it metastasizes into an absolutely enormous question. Um, so I, I hope you guys enjoy that one too. As always, if you have any questions about anything at all, and we have absolutely no filter, we'll answer anything, um, email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And as I say every episode, if you enjoyed this episode, if you have friends and you like sharing, I do ask you to share this episode. And if you didn't like this episode, why don't you share it with your enemies? And I'll see you next week.